Hey there, and thanks for joining us on the Maine Question podcast from the University of Maine. I'm your host, Ryan Luznett. Well, we've hit a pretty wide array of topics in season four so far, food, forestry, artificial intelligence, the role of cooperative extension in our world today. For this episode, we thought we'd wade into the waters of the political world. Now, now, before you switch to something else, we are not doing a podcast on the political news of our day, winners and losers, or any of the stories that you can watch 24-7 on cable news or on your phone. We wanted to explore the role that politics plays in our lives these days. We were also curious about how one goes about teaching the subject of politics without getting political. And along the way, learn a little bit more about some of the issues in our politics that can be confusing and complicated. Does polling work, for instance? What about ranked choice voting? The Electoral College? Mark Brewer is a professor of political science at UMaine, and if you follow political news at all in this state, his name is likely pretty familiar to you. He is one of the go-to people in the state when media outlets are covering a political story. With everything that's happened in the recent past, it is a pretty lively time indeed to be involved in politics. Even a seasoned veteran like Mark has seen things happen that are unprecedented, as we all have. So just how do you cover and then effectively teach politics without getting political? Just one of the questions we put to Mark Brewer. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. We appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ron. So as someone who lives in this world and does politics, in essence, for a living, the subject of politics for everybody seems so omnipresent these days. Can you talk a little bit about the, your thoughts of the general role of politics and what it plays in our lives these days? Is it too much, too little, just right? I, I think there's that question kind of cuts both ways because obviously you want to have, in a, in a representative democracy such as we, we have, you want to have uh, a fairly high level of attention being paid to politics and involvement in politics on the part of the citizenry. And so the fact that we've got kind of some of this heightened awareness and participation and energy around politics is a, is a positive thing. On the other hand, um, when you know, kind of political polarization and anxiety, and in some cases even anger is so high, um, that's not necessarily a good thing. If we could have higher levels of attentiveness, involvement, participation, and lower levels of kind of polarization and kind of angry conflict, that would that would be the sweet spot. But that, that's hard to get, right? If, if there's if there's less conflict and less polarization, less anger, then you're going to tend to have less involvement. Um, as those things go up, people see the stakes as higher and they tend to participate more. I mean, if it were me I, and, I had to, and I could only have one or the other, if someone said, well, you can have low conflict and, um, or low involvement, what's it going to be? I'd, I, I'll go with the higher conflict if it's going to produce higher participation, I guess. You're someone who's steeped in this world, and you could tell us historically, but it seems like the last year, the last couple of years, had, had to be one of the most political eras ever. What, what's struck you in particular about this time? Have you ever, even as someone, a seasoned veteran like you, looked around and gone, wow, I never thought I'd see that? Well, I think, I think there's been a lot of that over the last uh, four years. You know, there's... The levels of polarization as they exist currently right now in American politics are higher than at any point in my lifetime, and I'll be 50 uh, a little bit later this year. So I've n I personally have never seen anything like this. 
you can go back in kind of American political history and find periods like this. You know, late 19th uh, century is one example. Um, if you look at kind of the, the levels of, of kind of social desperation surrounding the, the, the Great Depression and then the political energy surrounding the onset of the New Deal, um, you know, we, we could see something similar. But um, in my 50 years on the planet, I've never seen uh, anything like this. Um, in terms of some specifics, I mean, I, I, I w- if, if you would have told me that you would, we would ever see a, an American president, you know, saying that the, the media was the enemy of the people, I, mean, uh, I would have never thought that. I mean, obviously, presidents have had lots of conflicts with, with the media overall and individual reporters. And, and you know, they, they haven't always gotten along very well, but they're not supposed to get along, right, in, in many ways. But to to be just that openly dismissive and accusatory towards the media, uh, but I would have never thought you'd see an American president do that. Um, but we did, and uh, there's a there's a bunch of other uh, examples too that I could that I could tick off. But that that's the one to me. That's the one that that maybe seems the most potentially damaging. Because if you think back, you know, again, go back to the origins of the nation. You know, Thomas Jefferson, who had a very contentious relationship with the press throughout his entire career, um, nonetheless said, you know, the free press is the most basic fundamental element of a free society. No free press, no free society for long. So that for me is, is a big one that stands out. So we're trying to walk a tricky line here in talking about politics without getting political, like all the political news, quote unquote. I'm sure you've talked about that with a lot of folks, and you can get that anywhere you turn these days. But So beyond winners and losers, what, what part of the subject of politics was most interesting to you in this last go-around? Well, I think the most, the most interesting thing to me um, is also maybe the most concern, concerning thing to me is that, that you know, there were, there were real, there were times over the, last, over the last four years and during this campaign in particular where there were real threats, in my opinion, to American representative democracy. And those um, are incredibly concerning to me um, as both a citizen and as as an academic. Um, But again, it was something that, again, as an academic, it was something to to kind of examine and study because that was another thing that I had never really experienced before um, as a political scientist. I never, you know, recognizing fully that democracy is fragile and that it's not guaranteed to continue to exist in perpetuity, um, which I like a lot of people mistakenly think is the case in the U.S. It's not. It's not anywhere. Um, but fully recognizing that, I had never legitimately thought to myself that American democracy uh, was under threat until the last three years or so. You know, I've seen democracy under threat in lots of other countries. I mean, I study American politics, but I observe politics worldwide. And we've seen a lot of backsliding in various democracies across the globe in recent years. I didn't think it, that we'd get to that point in the U.S., and then we did. And so for me, that was really the most concerning but also interesting thing um, to, to kind of watch unfold over the last um, three-plus years, you know, culminating in many ways by kind of the, the assault on the Capitol, which was frightening uh, to, to watch. I can only imagine having been there. Watching it on TV, it was frightening to watch unfold. We got past that, which is a which is a good thing. Um, I think there's still investigations ongoing on that and accountability to be um, handed out. And, but hopefully, things are are um, headed in the right direction. 
So let's talk a little bit more about that work you're doing, uh, looking at the future of representative democracy. Clearly, like you, you said, it, it is under some threat. What are the specific threats and what are their root causes, do you think? Well, I think there's, there's two different sets of threats, I guess, is what I would say. They're related, but they're distinct. One of them is, uh, you know, a lot of the, the proposed legislation that we're seeing in a lot of states right now, um, looking at making access to the ballot harder uh, for Americans, right? And again, we've got 200 plus years of fighting over ballot access in this country. That's not a new thing. But really what's what's unique about the the last kind of 20 years of American politics, and in particular the, the energy behind uh, more restrictive ballot measures that we're seeing right now is that there is this concerted effort um, supported almost exclusively by one party at the moment, and that's the Republican Party, to try and make it harder for Americans to cast a ballot. Um, and anytime you change the rules around ballot access, you have the potentials to change winners and losers. Um, and that's, of course, why the, the conflict over those things is so, is so intense. Right? So that's one set of that's threats. And that's, it's, those are important for sure. Um, but they're also not new, right? As I said, we fought over um, ballot access for, for 200 plus years in this country. So concerning, yes. New, no. Um, existential threat, probably not. Um, on the other hand, we've got a threat to representative democracy coming from the fact that a significant chunk of the American population seems to be very supportive of authoritarian, anti-democratic measures and approaches. Now, it's not a majority um, of the American public by any means, but it's a significant chunk, somewhere between, you know, 25, 30, 35 percent, depending on the questions you look at in polling and, and how you want to go at this, but somewhere between a third, maybe a little bit more than that, of the American public is supportive of anti-democratic, pro-authoritarian measures. And that that is concerning, right? That is that is that's a bigger concern to me, I think, than fights over ballot access. And I'm not trying to diminish um, you know, any the work of anyone who's trying to expand ballot access. It's it's just that for me, the bigger threat is that when you've got a third of the population who's openly dismissive of democracy and supportive of authoritarianism, uh, that's, a, that's a real problem, in my, in my opinion. Talk about teaching politics, then. Is it hard to teach the subject without getting political, especially when things have become so partisan, everybody is part of their tribe and backing into their corners? How do you navigate that? That's a great question. It's it's kind of keeping your own your own political views and opinions out of the classroom is difficult in in quote unquote normal times, right? I mean, we all have biases, we all have opinions, and and no matter how conscious we try to be over those, they have a tendency to try and seep in, right? Um, so even during normal times, that's tough. Uh, but when you're dealing with kind of a, a hyper partisan, hyper polarized environment, as as you point out, it becomes even more difficult. Um, that being said, um, one of the things that, that I always strive to do is to be, um, you know, objective when I'm in the classroom, that I, I stick to kind of the, the facts and present uh, all different sides of an issue um, the same and, and let the students kind of uh, render judgment, right? I mean, I tell the students that I don't weigh in on normative questions, right? That's not my job. And um, if and I also always tell them that if they can tell my own kind of 
partisanship or ideology or politics by the end of a course, then I haven't done my job. And so um, I, I try very hard to keep that out. And I think I, I, think I succeed. Um, I, I kind of sometimes I'm an equal opportunity offender, right? You, you call out where it needs to be called out and give credit where credit's due. And if you, if you do that and try and play it straight, I, I, think, um, I think the students recognize that and respect it. And um, I think if in that case, um, as educators, we're doing our job. So talk about the political science program here at UMaine. What are its goals? What does it do well? How and where do your graduates take this degree? I think we have a very strong uh, program here in political science at, at UMaine. Um, I'm sure you know, you'd, you'd get the same answer from any faculty member in any department across campus. And we, and we have a number of strong programs, but I, I think political science is, is among the, the top programs on campus. Uh, we've, uh, we're a relatively small department, but with a great group of teacher scholars. It's one thing that we emphasize when we go to hire a new colleague. It's one thing we emphasize as you know, faculty are, are you know, kind of um, progressing through their career in the program is we want we want to be known as a, a faculty of teacher scholars. So everybody here is an active researcher, but everybody here is also um, really prides themselves on, on high performance in the classroom. And if you look at student evaluations of political science faculty, um, we do we do a good job of meeting that bar, right? We're, we're widely recognized by students as, um, as being great in the classroom. And we've got a number of uh, my colleagues in this department have won teaching awards or other um, kind of distinguished faculty awards across campus. Um, but also, again, everybody is, is very active in, in their own area of research. So that's, I guess that's, I think, what distinguishes us as a faculty. Um, in terms of what we try and do for students, I mean, we, we try and, um, you know, broadly educate them in all areas um, about politics and government, you know, American politics, comparative politics, international relations, political theory. Um, students have to take coursework in all of those areas. Um, we want them to leave our program and leave the university if they have a political science degree, having a broad knowledge of politics and government and then um, depth where they choose to pursue depth, right? So broadly knowledgeable, but if they choose to, to deepen their knowledge in a particular area, whether it's constitutional law or international relations or national security or whatever, you know, what, what have you, um, they have the opportunity to do that. Um, now, in terms of what they do with the degrees, that's, that's a, a pretty variable answer, right? I mean, we've got you know, some students who, who go into kind of real world politics, right? They'll go and they'll work in campaigns, they'll work in elections. Um, they'll go work um, in a legislature to, you know, in policy making. Um, or they'll go work for an interest group and do lobbying and advocacy. Um, we've got some students who go and work in um, kind of the international realm. You know, they'll go and work um, overseas for an NGO or they'll go and work um, in, a, in a federal agency that specializes in some area of foreign policy. Um, we've got a number of students who go on uh, to graduate programs, law school. A lot of our major, a lot of our majors go to um, go to law school, but a lot of them go on to get master's degrees and a handful every every year enter PhD programs. So we've got some that do that. Um, it, it's we've got some that end up going into media work. Uh, so there's there's a, a bunch of different areas uh, that our students pursue with their major after they graduate, um, but. One thing we know from kind of feedback from our alums is that regardless of the direction they pursue, um, they all feel that, you know, their political science degree has left them well prepared for whatever it is they choose to do next. 
How important do you think it is for students and, and really all of us to, to have an education in civics and some of these political theories and ideas? Well, I think it's important for all of us. I, I think not just not just students, but I think all Americans uh, need to have a, a fundamentally sound education in civics, right? I mean, if we're, again, going back to the fact that the United States is a re- small R, Republican form of government, where the people are ultimately sovereign, um, that system only works if a certain percentage of the public is educated on how politics and government works and a certain percentage of the public chooses to participate and get involved. And we know that the likelihood of both of those things happening dramatically increases with the level, the amount, and the quality of civic education that an individual has. So I I don't think you can overstate the importance of civic education for, for all Americans, regardless of what they choose to pursue um, in higher ed, or even if they don't, or what they choose choose to do with their life, I think we're all citizens, uh, and so I think we all should have that high level of civic education. Now we could do a long podcast on any one of these topics coming up here, but maybe let's do a little a little lightning round, just a couple sentences on some of the hot button issues in politics, and maybe you can explain or tell us what we need to know about some of these. Uh, electoral college, good idea, bad idea. What you know, it gets debated every election cycle. It does get debated every election cycle, um, and there's there's a you know efforts to try and amend and reform or even abolish the electoral college are again almost as old as the electoral college itself. But um, I think the the attention to it's been heightened because we've had a uh, you know two elections um, already uh, in the last twenty years where the person who won the popular vote as presidential candidate did not win. Um, in the Electoral College and, you know, George W. Bush in, in 2000 and Donald Trump in, in 2016. So that's kind of increased the attention on it. You know, the Electoral College was, was first adopted by the, by the founders for a number of reasons. You know, part of it had to do with the fact that not, at, not all of those people designing the Constitution felt that the people uh, were really equipped to select a president directly, that there needed to be some intermediary body. Um, there were certainly some considerations um, around kind of slave state versus free state in the creation of the Electoral College, right? Um, there was also, you know, a strong sentiment on the part of some that states needed to play a role uh, in selecting the president. So um, there's a lot of reasons for the Electoral College to be put in place. Um, now there's lots of arguments for why we should get rid of it. There's lots of arguments also maybe for why we should keep it. Um, I think you could make a reasonable case for, for either position. What seems to me to be important is recognizing that having the Electoral College in, in place benefits certain interests in the United States over others, right? If you got rid of the Electoral College, um, you're almost certainly going to to change the way presidential campaigns are conducted. So. I think any discussion of reform or abolishment, again, regardless of which side you're on, needs to be very kind of carefully considered and examined from all angles um, before before kind of making any steps on that. And I think that was probably longer than a lightning round answer. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, let's try this one then. Ranked choice voting. What exactly is it? And is it a more fair way to choose a politician? The first part, I think, is, is easy. What, what is ranked choice voting? It allows... Um, it allows stu- uh, voters to, um, if, let's say there are four candidates in a race, right? Um, rather than just choosing one, um, you know, their top choice and, and marking their ballot for that person, 
uh, and then who, and then having whichever of those four candidates wins win the election, which is what you would do in a, a single vote first past the post system, which is what most elections in the U.S. are. Ranked choice voting system allows voters to um, again we'll use our example of four candidates. They rank the four candidates if they choose to one through four, right? One being their top choice, four being their lowest choice. Those ballots go in, and gen- in most ranked choice voting schemes, if one candidate gets 50% plus one uh, of the votes on that first round, that candidate is declared the winner and the election is over. If no candidate gets 50% uh, plus one on that first round, the fourth place candidate is eliminated. That candidate's voters' second choices are reallocated to the remaining three to see if we can now get someone 50% plus one of the vote. If we do, that person wins, the election's over. If not, then the third place finisher is eliminated. Votes are reallocated again, and at that point, you will get 50% plus one, and you will get a winner. Now, in terms of whether it's a more fair way to conduct elections, that's, again, a normative question. You know, some would, would agree and say that it, it, it is. It gives people greater choice. Um, it allows them to vote for their top preference without the so-called worry about wasting one's vote. Um, on the other hand, um, there are some people who would say, well, it's not necessarily more fair because if there, there's at least a potential for a voter's ballot to become exhausted, which means there are no more choices left on it, before a winner is selected, and that person, you could say, is then disenfranchised. Um, and I think that's a real concern. So whether it's, whether it's more fair or not, I think, is a normative question. And as I said earlier, I tend not to weigh in on those um, but it certainly gives voters more choice. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I know we could do more on that, but let's move on to the, the next uh, question in our lightning round here. Polling, does it work and how accurate can it be? Uh, that's a hot button topic right now, right? I mean, the, the polls have been um, in the eyes of some off dramatically in the last two presidential cycles, uh, causing a lot of people to throw up their hands and say, oh, we can't rely on, on the polling anymore. Um, I think that state that kind of indictment is far too broad, right? I do think there's 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 no doubt that if if polling is done correctly, um, that it can tell us a great deal uh, about kind of whatever it is we're we're asking questions on. That being said, is is there are pitfalls in polling, um, it, and when you're conducting any poll, the pollster, uh, the polling organization has to be careful not to fall into those those pitfalls. Um, I think the rise of cell phones and the kind of fleeing of landlines has, has been a big challenge for pollsters. Um, and then they've, you know, they've been dealing it with, with it now for the better part of two decades, but they've yet to fully address it. Um, I think a bigger concern among pollsters is the number of people who just either refuse to participate, right? And if the, if the, part, if the refusal to participate is equal across all groups of the population, then it's not a worry. Some research shows it's not, then that is a worry. Or the possibility that a, a small group of um, small chunk of the population is purposefully dishonest or misleading to pollsters, right? And if that's the case, that's a really big problem. And um, we can't completely dismiss that possibility. So on its face, polling uh, can be done um, totally scientifically and, and give us you know, very accurate results, but there are pitfalls and we need to be careful of those. 
Now, I realize that uh, given that this is supposed to be a lightning round, it's not very fair of me to ask you to explain all these complicated things in a, on a cocktail napkin, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep trying here. So what exactly is the filibuster, and is it going to go away? This one we can probably do at least semi-lightning. Uh, the filibuster is a procedure in the United States Senate because the Senate allows for unlimited debate on an issue, right? One senator um, can just kind of hold the floor and keep talking. And uh, in order to bring that to a close, the Senate rules say in order to shut off that unlimited debate, you need 60 votes, right, to invoke what is known as cloture, to bring an end to a filibuster. What that means is that, with a very few exceptions, rather a simple majority in the Senate's not enough to pass something. You need 60 votes. That's why it's called the 60-vote Senate. Is it going away? I think that's a very hot topic right now. Uh, a lot of Democratic senators want it to go away, right, because they're saying that they can't get any, their, their bills through uh, because they only have 50 votes plus the vice president to break the tie. Joe Biden, you know, who spent 30 plus years in the United States Senate and has been opposed to um, getting rid of the filibuster, came out this week and said, well, maybe we should go back to the talking filibuster, right, where somebody has to actually hold the floor. Um, I, I don't I think we can say short term, it's probably not going away because West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin said he has no interest in getting rid of the filibuster, um, which means that there's probably no way to get rid of the filibuster in this particular Senate. Um, will they, but could there be some tweaks to it? Manchin did indicate he might support Biden's uh, proposal bringing back the talking filibuster. So maybe we'll see that. I don't think we'll see much more than that. What is your take on the state of bipartisanship? Do you think it'll ever make a resurgence and come back to where we hope and think it should be? Well, I mean, obviously bipartisanship uh, is at a low point right now, for sure. Uh, not only in Washington, but in many state capitals across the country. That being said, um, the, the public still indicates that, you know, they very much want bipartisanship in their politics. Whether they actually mean that, I think, is an open question, but they say they want it. Um, if you look historically, we've seen kind of a, a, a ebb and flow of bipartisanship, right? It's, it, it, it waxes and wanes, and, and I would assume we're waning, we're at a wane point right now, I would assume that it will it'll wax, or right? it'll come back at some point. Um, whether that's going to be this particular election cycle, I think that's an open question. But I think at some point we will see an increase in bipartisanship again. It's just a matter of when. Given the deep divides in this country, is Congress just a mirror of that present situation? Does it or can it still work and be effective as maybe it was in, in earlier days? I think Congress is, is always in many ways a mirror of the country, right? It's not, it's not always a perfect mirror, but there's a certain element of that there. So yes, the deep divisions in Congress are driven in part by the deep divisions that are in place in the American public. Now, that being said, there's, there's strong evidence there's a feedback loop there too, right? So as Congress becomes more polarized and less bipartisan, that feeds back to the public and they become more polarized and less bipartisan, which then, of course, feeds Congress. So it's a cycle and it keeps going. Um, part, of, part of what's going on in Congress, though, is, are, is due to the institutional rules in place, right? We've got a number of districts in the House of Representatives because of gerrymandering that are heavily um, drawn purposely, uh, you know, to benefit one party or the other. And again, that's not new, but the technology we have to do that now is, is better than it's ever been before. Um, and so these gerrymandered districts um, draw, help drive polarization for sure. Um, I think the fact that you've got, you know, the, the Senate having, you know, uh, 
the Constitution requires each state have equal representation in the Senate. Well, you know, Wyoming has a lot fewer people than California, and that, but a lot of these these smaller rural states tend to be overwhelmingly conservative. So that contributes to ideological polarization as well. Um, in terms of can Congress work again the way it used to? Sure. Um, but I think there needs I think there needs to be some changes to some of the rules and some of the procedures uh, in order to, to make that more likely to happen. You're sort of one of the go-to guys in the state for commentary about politics. Is that a role that you like, along with some of your other academic colleagues around around the state at other institutions? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think I think it's important to um, I think it's important to. to Kind of partner with the media. Uh, you know, again, the, the the a free press is is incredibly important to a healthy democracy. And the, for the vast majority of, of Americans, the way they get their information about politics and government is from the media. So the media are providing an incredibly important service. Um, I see it as important if uh, you know any of us have expertise in an area that is relevant to kind of public life, and the media um, you know seek us out for our expertise. I think we should you know, be happy to, uh, and willing to share that expertise. And so I, I see that role as important. And I, I do like uh, to engage uh, with journalists. I know there are, you know, I think some of the most astute observers of politics in the state are some, uh, some of my colleagues in the media. You know, I mean, I, when, I, when I talk politics with Mal Leary, I learn something, right, which is, uh, which is good, right? So I, I, I enjoy that role. I think it's important. Um, and I, I think that's a, a, especially given we're a land-grant institution, right, a land-grant public institution, that's a fundamental part of our role, and I see my colleagues doing that across the board. You know, contributing their expertise uh, out to the larger public. I think it's a, I think it's a great thing. So, as we wrap up here, what what are some of the trends or stories that you're watching for, and what what concerns you the most, or gives you hope uh, regarding our politics and our political system going into the future? Just the fact that that we've had to have real conversations about threats to representative democracy in the United States is, is my primary area of concern. And I don't think that those threats have gone away or disappeared by any means. I think they're still there. So I think that's one of the big things I'm watching. Uh, and that's also one of the big things that gives me cause for concern. If we're looking for hope, uh, you know, I, I certainly think that as we come out of the shadow of, of a global pandemic, right, and start to return to some semblance of normalcy, we might you know, think that our politics might do the same, um, you know, so that's cause for hope. Um, I do think, and this is not to take partisan sides, but I think, you know, Joe Biden is, is kind of well-equipped based on his experience and his past and his own kind of personal life to, you know, possibly lead the nation politically out of this tumultuous, conflictual time, right? Um, you know, there's been some talk of Biden as consoler-in-chief or healer-in-chief, and um, you know, normally I, I think some of those, normally I'd say characterizations like that might be overblown. I think in this case they might be accurate. And I do think that he's, you know, he has a high degree of empathy. And I think that's maybe something that's necessary right now. And again, that's not to choose partisan sides. It's not based on his policy positions. It's based more on his, on his character and his personality and just kind of the, the, the way he's kind of conducted himself in public life over his you know, 50 plus years uh, serving the American public. So I, I, I guess that gives me a little bit of hope too. Well, I, I for one, and I hope everybody uh, really focuses on the hopeful things you just shared with us. And let's, let's see if we, we get there. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Sounds good, Ron. Thanks.
Thanks as always for tuning us in. If you want to find out more about the political science department at UMaine, head to umaine.edu slash poli-sci. That's P-O-L-I-S-C-I. You can find all of our episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Check those sites out and subscribe to our series if you're so inclined. This is Ron Lesnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.